Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd, and in this episode, recorded in April of 2020, I speak with one of the leading prophetic voices on the planet today, Roger Halem. Roger is an organic farmer, co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, author of Common Sense for the 21st Century, and he speaks about the mother of all moral imperatives, which is to stand on behalf of future generations and doing so whether you think it's going to be successful or not, because it's the right thing to do. I found this tremendously inspiring, and I think you will too. Well, Roger, thank you for making time to be part of this post-Doom conversation series. And I, I recognize that what you'll be sharing is just your own perspective, that you don't speak on behalf of Extinction Rebellion. But I wanted to invite you here at the start to just share a little bit about yourself for people who aren't familiar with you, haven't, haven't read your stuff or watched your videos. Uh, help us get you, um, and then we'll launch into some of the questions that I've been asking my other guests. Yeah, well, um... I've been involved in various social movements since I was about 14, I think, something like that. Uh, I was uh, cut my teeth in the 1980s in the peace movement. I'm 53 now. Um, I'm the son of two sort of Methodists. My mum was a local Methodist preacher, so I brought had a sort of strong Calvinistic Christian upbringing, <laughs> uh -huh. as you'll probably find out over the next uh, <laughs> next um, you know hour. But, um, and I, uh, were, yeah, I've been involved in organizing people most of my life, really. I, I, for the last 20 years, I've been an organic vegetable farmer in Wales. And in the early 2000s, there's quite a lot of extreme weather conditions. It rained every day for seven weeks and destroyed most of my business. And since then, I've been, since then, I've been moving moving towards well initially academia i did a uh, master's at swansea university in, in wales and then i've been at the king's college um which is quite a posh university i guess in london uh doing a phd in how to cause trouble effectively as the euphemism goes and say a little bit about uh how you got into the extinction rebellion work yeah so i've been doing a lot of field research in London, which basically meant going around campaigns and trying to make them more effective. So I was involved in the first successful rent strike in London in 30 years. And then I worked with uh, grassroots trade unions to uh, mobilize uh, casualized workers. So quite a lot of people knew about me. And I was asked by some climate change activists to do some workshops on how to be more effective in their campaigning. And basically I said to them, you know, climate change situation is not like any normal social issue because it's everything. Exactly. <laughs> and exactly. it's only getting to get solved through complete uh, system change. And I was saying that, you know, as an analyst rather than as an ideological statement. Yeah. And uh, so to cut a long story short, uh, that led to the setting up a network called Rising Up. And we spent about a year and a half working out how to build an effective and sustainable social movement, looking at the lit various literatures. And I did quite a lot of prototyping, as you call it, which basically means getting arrested lots of times, going to prison, <laughs> going on hunger strike, just to see how the world works when you cause trouble. And um, in January 
2018, I did a paper called Pivoting to a Real Issue, where I said that in the UK and across the Western world, the climate change catastrophe is basically going to be the buttering ram that's going to bring down the system. And it's structurally possible to create a mass movement based upon civil disobedience because of the actuality of the threat, as you might say. And uh, that led in April to the founding Extinction Rebellion. And obviously, since then, everything's history, really. You know, it's boomed into a global movement in 50 countries. Um, there's 200,000 people involved in the UK. It's been involved in the biggest civil disobedience episodes in the whole of British history and largely transformed the, the conversation, I say, in Britain and arguably around the world. It was the number one influencer on climate change last year. And um, that's basically because we break the law. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. How, that's how it works. And yeah. and and what what's happened? You, you had mentioned before we started this recording that uh, there's some exciting stuff happening here in the United States. Say a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I was asked to sort of advise on more effective mobilisation in the states, and a bunch of people were really keen to do mass mobilization which basically means setting up hundreds and potentially thousands of chapters uh, so that we can mobilize you know tens of thousands of people to do civil disobedience mm -hmm. and the reason for that of course is that if we're going to bring back real political change it's brought you know the bottom line is it's a numbers game right you know if you have 300 people arrested in washington dc no one's really bothered, but if you've got 30,000, that's another kettle of fish. So that's, you know, that's my day job really, is, is, is helping people to do that using, yeah. you know, modern yeah. social science to inform how to mobilize people effectively. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, I was planning on asking it as the last question, but I think this is actually a good time to ask about the Corona, you know, we're now living in a, you know, it's kind of like the Christian calendar is divided into BC and AD. Um, and now we're, you know, the industrial world is divided into before coronavirus, BC and AC after coronavirus. So I'm curious, what have, what's been some of the thinking? And again, I know you're just speaking for yourself, but um, uh, how has coronavirus shifted or how have you noticed that shifting the conversation and possible strategies around activism in general and Extinction Rebellion in, in particular? Um. Well, the truth of the matter is, I think everyone initially was quite confused about it because it's something that hasn't happened, obviously, in our lifetimes to find the whole world effectively locked down and economies brought to a halt. So there's no point pretending that we sort of know exactly what's happening <laughs> because we don't really have a precedent, or at least we don't have a precedent in terms of modern consumerist globalization, as you might say. So I have, I've been, you know, holding back or making big pronouncements about it because I'm just watching it and seeing how, how mm -hmm. it pans out. Having said that, you know, obviously various themes are emerging, which is that this is not going to be going away in the next two or three weeks. It's going to lead to a major structural downturn in the global economy. And that's going to lead to all sorts of social pressures and potentially social breakdown in the next year. And as far as the climate crisis is concerned, obviously there's a number of there's a number of things that are emerging. Uh, one is that governments are sort of responding to it in the same way that they've responded to the climate crisis, which is to be pretty illiterate on the meaning of an exponential curve. <laughs> exactly. And you know, um, 
if you've got any mathematical knowledge, you know that, you know, if you, if you halt something a few days earlier when you've got an exponential process, oh, I think you might have gone. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're there. You're there. I, I could yeah. hear you. Well, you know, without getting into technicalities of it, as the United States is now finding out, if you delay doing something for about a week, then you're potentially going to have three or four times the number of deaths. And uh, that's the nature of the maths. Yes. And of course, that's, that's the fundamental truth of the climate catastrophe, is the longer you leave it, then the worse it's going to get. And of course, arguably, it's going to be terminal. Yes. So there's absolutely no excuse, really, for, for not taking emergency action from any sane point of view. Um, and the other thing I'd say is that, you know, maybe we're going to talk about this a bit more, is it's just reminding us that death exists. And, you know, our, our societies, our Western society is, is massively in denial about the reality of death and for understandable reasons, because who wants to deal with death? But the fact of the matter is it's there and nature is a lot more powerful than we think. And nature can bring down, you know, the global economy in a matter of three weeks, as we've seen. Yes. So I think that's going to be a little bit of a cultural wake-up call that we're going to hopefully rediscover the reality of nature and its overwhelming determinism in human affairs. And again, of course, that's got massive implications for understanding the climate catastrophe. Yes, exactly. Wow, that was great. Well, Roger, one of the things that I would love to hear any thoughts you have on is just the language that we're using in, in this conversation series we're using post doom and by that i mean you know sort of any conversation that moves someone from fear uh to action from hope to trust uh from uh anger to compassion and generosity is a is in my opinion a post doom conversation um what language do you find yourself well first of all how do you how do you relate to does that language work for you but how what are you yourself speaking about these contracting and, and collapsing times? Well, yeah, I was sort of interested in, in, in having a, this podcast with you because I do, I do have something to say, <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> which is, you know, like, I think if you've been in the business, as you might say, of dealing with, with the climate catastrophe for a decade or so, which, you know, a lot of people have, you start thinking about bigger issues than, you know, just reducing the carbon, as you might say, exactly. or, you know, the policy framework. You start thinking about exactly how is this going to work? You know, how exactly are we going to be making this global change? And the more you think about it, the more, if you're honest with yourself, the more obvious it is that it's only going to come about through some sort of miracle. The physical <laughs> science... You know, all the physical science saying we're totally fucked. I mean, I don't know where people keep pretending we're not going over two degrees. It's yeah. like, I mean, you know, if we're not, that's fine. I'm, I'm not, I've got no death wish. I'm just looking at it as, as a scholar, as you might say. And, you know, so for instance, like I was talking to Paul Beckwith the other day and we we're just going through, you know, the super basics, like are we at 1.1 degrees or not? Well, it turns out that, we're actually at 1.3 because the there's this massive scandal that we were supposed to be measuring from 1750 
And because it was looking a bit tricky, then they moved it to 1880 or whatever it is. Well, you know, if I if I was if I was a teenager writing a an essay about the Industrial Revolution, and I said it started in 1880, you know, I'd be getting a D. <laughs> you know, something as basic as that. And really, like, I don't care. You know, if it's 1.1, that's fine. I'm not I'm not trying to push it up. I just want to know. I just want to know what it is. And if it is 1.3, then let's say 1.3, not, you know, do something as totally corruptible as changing the starting point. So the more you look into the, the what you might call the, the political nature of uh, the climate crisis, the more you start feeling like you're in this weird, weird topsy-turvy world, you know, where it's just completely corrupt. And this isn't a small point, you know, like two... <laughs> Point no, two is a massive point, right? You know, once we get past 1.5, you're arguably, you know, well past the tipping points. So this is, anyway, you know, the point I'm trying to make is, is the situation is well and truly fucked, right? You know, there's no, there's no way around that. And yeah. you know, I wouldn't be swearing if I was talking about, you know, a penny and income tax, right? I'm swearing because there's no other way of putting it. There's no other emotionally congruent way of of describing the situation and 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 so what you start and then you add on like the sociology of it which is my you know my area of scholarship as you might say and you don't need to look at the literature on denial mechanisms to realize there's a massive massive problem in trying to get people to look at this you know, in a way that needs to be looked at because it's so easy to deny things that aren't right in front of your face. And human exactly. beings are really terrible at doing this. And there's good, so there's good evolutionary reasons why we shouldn't be yes. looking at things in front of our face. So I'm not giving anyone a hard time about it. I'm just saying it's really difficult. And all of us do this, right? You know, I, if I don't look at a science article for about a week or so, I start becoming a little bit complacent. I can feel myself going, you know, this is just a job. <laughs> You know, it's that cozy job for me, uh, working for Extinction Rebellion. And then you read another science article, and I'm sure, you know, I've asked other people about this. Some people go through this, this endless rotation between a sort of vague complacency and a total terror. And you yes. just, you know, move out of one and into the other. So the upshot of it is, is, you know, as a political scientist, I would say there's not a chance in hell that we're not going to have the end of civilization if I was just look going to engage in a materialistic analysis and um, so what does that mean so that leads us on to whether we're going to have a miracle or not and I, I've got this idea that there is I could construct something called the sociology of miracles right <laughs> because you can actually look at miracles sociological and by miracle I don't mean you know me sort of you know producing a house out of thin air or something, right? I'm not talking about that sort of thing. What I'm talking about is a point at which a society is heading towards a complete disaster and somebody or something turns it around. And there's good evidence, I think, to show that it can be turned around if a small number of people engage in prophetic action. And, and I think this is what connects with your intuition i think about post doom that realizing that we're heading for a doomful future as it were is not actually the end point 
And I think you said something about moving to the other side, which strangely enough has been a phrase that I've been toying with, you know, independently of you. So I, I, maybe I've got this all wrong, right? <laughs> oh, the, you, you, the, the way you've just articulated that is very similar to my own. I mean, I, the, the, the visual analogy I've used <clears throat> in, in a few of these calls and on the website is I see doom as the midpoint. Most people avoid going to the door of doom because over the top of it, they see WASF. And of course, they know that means we are so fucked. Um, and then there's the stages of grief that lead you there. And many people think that the doom door means you're going to live in, in despair the rest of your life. And so the, the, the paradox, though, is that for most of us, if we allow ourselves to feel the stages of grief, move through that, and then come to what Paul Traferka calls finding the gift, on the other side of the post-doom door or the doom door, you turn back and you realize, oh, that's only the midpoint. There are these yeah. spheres of gratitude, spheres of compassionate local action, spheres of prophetic action, but coming from a place not of in order to, because we know that these systems are not going to transform in any normal way. So it's almost a fearless prophetic, at least I'm finding for myself, a fierceness because I've accepted death because I've accepted that our, of course our species is gonna go extinct. It could be in the next 20 years, it might not be for another million or two million years from now, but even on a cosmic time frame, a million or two million years before an asteroid or super volcano or something takes us out, that's, that's not very long on a cosmic time frame. So I find that my activism is, is and my, just my local actions come from a place of uh, compassionate generosity and, and, and a, a, a prophetic zeal to make whatever difference I can make, but not in order to save civilization, because I don't think civilization can be saved. Civilization, as Thomas Berry, uh, well, really, several of my main mentors, Teddy Goldsmith, Thomas Berry, William Catton, all spoke about the necessity of industrial civilization collapsing. It was what um, William Catton in his book, Overshoot, called Homo Colossus. Homo Colossus has to go extinct. That may or may not include the extinction of Homo sapiens. So yeah, that, that post-doom place of inspired local action on the other side of fear and anger and bargaining, um, it's certainly the conversation I want to be having. The take that I develop on it is that what, when I was doing my research, I became very interested in the motivation structures of people who take transgressive action, both in this society and historically. Uh -huh. And it seemed pretty clear to me fairly quickly that the people who are most effective at transforming social structures, at least the first movers, and it is usually a first mover sort of thing, uh, you know, to, to make change happen. It depends upon first movers. The people that are first movers are not primarily interested in outcomes. And yes. this is a really interesting sociological paradox because you would afford most people that are going to put themselves, their lives at risk and their liberty at risk would have a really powerful utilitarian orientation, which is, you know, why should I do this unless I'm sure something will happen? But sociologically, empirically, as it were, it's the other way around, which is that people that are most, are most committed and most uh, effective, as it were, in their social activism, in other words, talking truth to power and proper truth to power, and also engaging in sacrificial, high-level sacrificial action and what have you, is they are primarily um, influenced by what I call virtual ethics, which covers a multitude of sins, as it were. But, you know, and it takes different cultural and spiritual 
orientations. But the fundamental characteristic of it is I'm doing this as an end in itself. Yes. You know, either I'm doing it because of my, you know, beliefs in virtue or I'm doing it because, um, you know, out of self-respect or I'm doing it because God has told me to. But there's no expectation of an outcome. And so this is what really interests me about going to the other side of despair, which is that, uh, ju just for the record, I haven't come to the other side of despair. I'm a little bit more too human for that. But I have broadly, you know, people, people can be very simplistic about it. Like you click your fingers and you're all going to be fine forevermore. But there is a fundamental transition, I think. And this connects with a lot of a lot of spirituality and mysticism in many different global cultures where people see life basically as a way of coming to terms with death. Yeah. And, and what I see in the climate change sort of situation is basically we're prematurely being forced to come to, 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 to face with, with death, which is, which is quite sort of cosmically amusing as a way because our, our culture has been the most death-denying culture in the history of humanity. Absolutely. Everything that we do has been, so it's like, if you go to one extreme, it's like it comes back and hits you in the face, which is now we're faced with the most almighty, monstrous sort of reality of death at the same point at which we're most in denial of it. So you've got this massive tension going on, and you can see this right across our culture, you know, of people grappling with it. And it's going to explode somewhere along the line because the tension is extremely, you know, it's going up exponentially, right? And my prediction, I guess, is that some people are going to bury their heads ever more deeply and other people are going to flip to this other side, as it were. And when a critical mass of people flip to the other side, those are the people who are going to bring down the fossil fuel regimes. Not because they think it will work, but because they want to live a life of integrity and, and, you know, in various cultural and spiritual sort of interpretations of that, as I said. So, and yeah, and I think, I think, you know, I, I'm quite into complexity theory and, and this sort of, I'm quite into modern science. So it's not like I'm some old fashioned spiritualist or anything. What I see happening is when you, when you, um, when you put pressure on a system, then it bifurcates, as it's called. You know, some people go one way and other people go the other way. From a complexity theory point of view, if you put a lot of pressure on a system, then you don't crush the system. What happens is the system like splits into two. So some, some part of the system goes to one extreme and some part of the system goes to the other. And, and this works in nature and it also works in human systems. And I think this is one of the main theories behind Extinction Rebellion. Because people used to, you know, when we set it up, people said, oh, you can't talk about extinction and you can't talk about rebellion. You know, this is going to put people off. It's going to depress people. People are going to, you know, step out of campaigning and activism and what have you. And of course, they're right. A lot of people are because they don't want to face the reality. But what they forget is a minority of people move in the other direction and go, oh, my God, this is so bad. I can't continue living my life and allowing this to happen. Exactly. And, and that's the fundamental theoretical shift that's happening at the moment, is people are realising that it's better to know the truth, move through the horror that that truth communicates, 
to another side where you're not actually that concerned about what's going to happen in a, in a sort of stressy way. And because of that, of course, you're so much more sustainable. And this is what I say to activists and campaigners all the time, is we're dealing with something that's so horrific that if you're going to have a utilitarian orientation, i.e. think, you know, I'm going to sit down in the road in order to get this policy proposal passed, you're going to burn out in six months because you're just not going to be able to cope with the disappointment, right? What you've got to be going is, I'm sitting in the road because I've had enough of this shit. That's it. <laughs> you know, I'm just over it. I'm just over living this society that has this monstrous idea that it's going to destroy everything forever. You know, no way am I going to sit around and wait, for, you know, and just do nothing. Because when I die, and there's this deathbed element in it, isn't there? When you die, and there's evidence for this, you know, when you die, you're basically concerned about two things, which is how, how good were your relationships? And, and did you make a difference in your life? You're not thinking about where you went on holiday, you know, all that shit. It's just like you're thinking, did, did, it, did it actually make sense? Well, obviously, you're sitting there in 20 years' time with your children starving to death, and you're thinking, what did I do in 2020? Um, you know, I listened to a few videos and got a little bit upset and then went back to my job. You know, that's not going to cut it. <laughs> so, you know, you can look upon this as a self-interest thing, in, in a way. You know, self-interest covers a multitude of sins, isn't it? Um, you know, and the materiality argument of self-interest is pretty nonsensical the more you think about it. Because the biggest determinant of contentment, as we know, is like whether you're in service to the greater good. Yes, and there's plenty exactly. of evidence that it's not just a it's not just a moral idea. You can look at it sociologically. People are a lot happier when they're dedicating themselves to something outside themselves. So and most people work that out, don't they? By the time you get to fifty, you start thinking the whole material game was a bit of a bit of a loser <laughs> thing. So you're thinking, well, you know, what's the point? What I'm going to do for the next 20, 30, 40 years? Well, you just go. Well, I'm going to do something that makes sense, right? You know, something that actually makes, makes sense. And, you know, my argument is, you know, for your nice listeners, is the only thing that makes sense at the moment, you know, and for the rest of our lives, is to take down the regimes that are going to kill our children. That's it. You know, there's, no, there's nothing else out there. And there's, it's a total moral imperative. It's the moral imperative. It's the mother of all moral imperatives. There's nothing even close to it. I, you know, assuming we're just looking bluntly at the figures, right? The figures are beyond fact, as we've, as we've said. And if people listening just don't believe it, then just go and, you know, spend a few hours objectively listening to where we're up to on the science. It's, it's not good, is it? Preach it, brother. I, I, I thought I was the preacher in this relationship, but I can see I'm in the amen <laughs> choir. I'm saying, amen, keep it, keep it going. <laughs> Well, the interesting thing is, I think, is that, you know, traditionally mysticism and spirituality has led to a sort of fatalism. And I think this is the big danger. I've got very little time, to be honest, with the whole new age, evangelical, you know, Christian spiritual world. You know, exactly. it's got a lot of wisdom in it. But basically, you know, no disrespect intended, but it's full of bullshit. If, 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 if you're not actually in resistance to the end of everything that you're supposed to value right you know what sort of what sort of integrity is that you know like there's i could say more on that but i'll probably get myself in trouble <laughs> i'm trying to keep on the right side 
and things. Right, right, right. <laughs> but you know, you you can imagine, you know, you know, I mean doing yoga is fine, right? But doing yoga and just doing yoga is is a contradiction of everything that yoga stands for. You see what I mean? And you yes. can apply that to Christianity, you can apply that to Buddhism, you can apply that to paganism, you know, all these things are cool. I am I think they're great, you know. But at the end of the day, if you're sitting at home just waiting for the end of the world to happen, then basically you're complicit in it. That's a universal situation, right? Yeah. You're breaking the universal moral law. And every culture has that moral law, right? Which is don't shit on other people. That's the moral law in blunt Anglo-Saxon terms. And, and how it's looking at at the moment is you're basically shitting on the kids, which is about the most criminal, stupid, outrageous thing a culture can ever do. So... Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I not only do I agree, but uh, Teddy Goldsmith, um, in his book, The the Stable Society, and of course, his magnum opus, The Way, an Ecological Worldview, but in The Stable Society, he talks about, he even defines religion in stable cultures, in sustainable cultures, as the control mechanism of stable cultures. In other words, it was that dimension of society that spoke with moral authority that the future must never be compromised by the present. And upon yeah. pain of death or ostracism, I mean, the, this idea that we can not, not only compromise the future, but destroy the future for short-term profit is evil and needs to be called evil. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, I think that's the essence of what prophecy is. And prophecy is basically speaking the truth against expediency. That's how I see it, regardless yeah. of the consequences. And you know, often it ends up with people on a cross, right? <laughs> it's not an easy path. But I mean, I think the interesting thing from a psychological point of view is if you look at prophets in the past, I think they're sort of dragged along by their conscience or by God or however you want to construct it. In other words, they don't particularly want to do it. You know, there's plenty of stories in the Old Testament. This is archaeology stuff right in many cultures if someone just wants to have a nice quiet life but they're basically prevented yes. from doing so by something within them and i think this raises like i think going on a deeper level if, if you're up for this basically i think there's may if we're going to create a sustainable level of resistance as you might say is what we're primarily talking about here we have to interrogate the western sense sense of what it is to exist what the self is because we have this ridiculously naive reductive idea that the self is you know roger hallen well everyone knows this you know where do you find this roger hallen where where do you find michael you know you look inside it and you what you've got is you know there's different ways of constructing this but the bottom line is there's loads of different selves right you know one of the funny things is is i wake up in the morning and I'm already thinking before I'm aware that I'm thinking. So I come up with lots of my ideas and then I realize I'm thinking them. Well, where did those ideas come from? Is that me? Well, obviously not because I didn't consciously think them. So there's massive ambiguity about it at a minimum. And you know, I haven't got, you know, I'm not pretending I've got the answer of what the nature of the self is. Not to mention our microbiome that we don't exist without, the trees that make the oxygen and the plankton that make the oxygen that we don't exist without. So identifying the sense of self as, the, you know, the skin encapsulated ego is just not physically accurate. It's, it's, and, it's, and it's delusionary because it 
uh, well, it takes us on in a whole direction where we're not first and foremost committed to relating to primary reality, let's just say the biosphere, as a greater thou, not a lesser it. I think what we need is, it's not such a rigid idea of what it is to be who we are. I mean, I, haven't, I, I, don't, I don't believe in any really, I don't like dogmas of any sort, if you see what I mean. Right, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to communicate to people is when something bad happens to you, right, you've got a choice <laughs> of how to interpret that because you've got a choice about how you interpret what it is to be the person you are, yeah. if you see what I mean. So you can interpret something as an outrageous act towards you and feel lots of self-pity. Or you can decide to transcend that ego or whatever you want to call it and decide that you're not going to engage in that sort of moral, sort of personal drama and continue. And the people that are most strong, the people that are going to resist this madness are going to have that strength. In other words, they're not going to have a really atomistic sort of idea of themselves. Exactly. You know, like my head's a bit of a drama queen, right? I'm always like feeling outraged by things. But I just don't entertain it. I've got to the age where I just go, well, that's interesting, you know, and uh, sleep, you know, I sleep on it and get up in the morning and it just doesn't seem that important anymore. And I think that's an interesting, you know, there's different ways of doing that. People do it through meditation or what have you. But the point is, is, you know, we live in this mad, you know, the whole climate change movement is, is stuck in a materialistic enlightenment sort of paradigm where it thinks that people exist and bad things exist. Everything's like materialistic, but it's not. Everything's a matter of interpretation. You know, you can choose to decide who you are. You can choose whether something that's bad happening to you is bad. And sociologically, we know this, right? Because yeah. people that, are, people that are, you know, the rebels in history, they, they didn't mind terrible things happening to them because they were clear about, about something else. So I'm not suggesting, you know, this is necessarily easy, but to, but to have this really totalitarian idea of a materialistic world is, is massively undermining our, resist, our ability to resist effectively because we're so scared of, 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 this, of this world and we, shouldn't, we don't need to be scared of it, right? The main reason we're going to hell, as far as I'm concerned, is because of fear. Yes. Because we've allowed ourselves to think that fear is real rather than something we choose to engage with. And, you know, obviously that's difficult but, and it's a discipline, but it is possible to transcend your fear, you know, through practice. It's like a muscle as far as I see it. Yeah. So my general life philosophy is when I see, feel fearful of something, that's something to overcome. It's not something to succumb to and retreat from. And that, that's what makes me fundamentally different to most people in the climate change movement. Yeah, because people will say to me, oh, Roger, you know, you know, it's terrible. You know, it's really terrible. You might get arrested or you go on a hunger strike. Oh, that's really bad for you. Or, you know, you're going to go to prison. Oh, yeah, it's really bad. And I, you know, I, I don't say some this often because I don't want to upset them. But what I really want to say is, no, it's no big deal. It really is no big deal because I've transcended my fear of it. And that's not because I'm some weird person. Like millions and millions of people manage to overcome their fear. And the biggest life sort of global project I see at the moment is to enable people to overcome their fears of resistance to the regimes that are taking us to our destruction. 
and once people achieve that revolutionary fearlessness as you might call it mm -hmm. then the regimes are, are powerless right i mean there's a there's a um sorry i'm rambling on aren't i but i'll finish it in a minute but okay. there's a really interesting i don't know if you've seen this but maybe people watching this should watch this video there's a video called um the children's march which is you know about the famous episode i think it's in birmingham alabama about 1963 when thousands of kids came out on the street and thousands of them are arrested right and every day they came out more arrested and put into prison you know it's a classic sort of civil rights sort of thing and obviously it was messy and lots of people got hurt and and all the rest of it but the the upshot of it is is by the end of the week there were like thousands of young people and kids in prison and the, the inspector of police, this sort of semi-fascist guy, you know, he came in front of the camera and he said, the fear has gone, right? In other words, he was saying like, we're powerless because whatever we do to these guys, they're not afraid of us anymore. Exactly. And this is, this, is the, this is the single most important message to people is you have to overcome that fear and you overcome it, of course, by not being concerned about what the outcome is. You're entering into the field of play, in, you know, you're going into the field of battle with no expectation of success. You're going in there going, this is what I've got to do. Cycling back to what you mentioned earlier, it's also, I've found, uh, one of the things that nurtures fearlessness is genuinely being at peace with your mortality, that you're going to die. And we're all going to die, but being at peace with that then doesn't, it has no power over you. You're not afraid of dying because you know you've already, it's kind of like uh, Roy Scranton in his book, uh, I forget if it was uh, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene or We're Doomed Now What, but it was in one of those where he talks about, you know, as a soldier, um, he, the only way he could go about his work was to have already decided I'm already dead. Um, yeah. Because then it was, then he could be fearless. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the ultimate step, as you might say, in this transition from, you know, being attached to transcendence. You know, as I say, there's different ways of, there's different ways of constructing this. And I, I don't have a particular cultural orientation on it. Yeah. But you're totally correct that in most cultures, people transcend during their lifetime from being attached to being not attached. And that's, you know, for a number of different reasons, but an obvious one is because of the um, reality of your approaching death yes. and the, the fundamental realization that you're not going to get out of this one, right? <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> and so it doesn't really matter to a certain extent whether it's tomorrow or whether it's in 30 years time, because the main point of your life, as in traditional cultures uh, is the case, the main point of life is self-mastery, which is to overcome your fear of death. And it's serving the larger whole. Yes, and through that, through that, yeah, that's the other side of it. As I said, it can lead to a sort of fatalistic attitude, but I think it's very possible and certainly necessary at the moment to combine that transcendence with a revolutionary further. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. That's, and if we combine those two, it's like, it's like a nuclear reaction. If we combine the spiritual and the revolutionary, and, you know, this is solid sociology, you know, political sociology, as guys that I've talked with have said, if you look at successful revolutions, they basically read, they're, they're, they're run by people that are highly spiritual and highly revolutionary at the same time. 
because they have to have that fearlessness. And, you know, I fully accept, by the way, that some of these guys are quite scary, right? You know, <laughs> there's no, you know, it's not like I've got a naive idea about it. But just sociologically speaking, that's the raw psychic material of bringing down regimes. Now, obviously, many, a lot of the time, it should, you shouldn't be bringing down regimes because, you know, that's going to result in chaos and all the rest of it. But in the present context, it's absolutely yes. necessary, uh, you know, to do this. And obviously, it's open question about what replaces it. And that's another conversation. But there's absolutely no question that we need mass civil disobedience, you know, not, you know, for two or three days a year, but for week after week after week, yes. you know, like a general strike. And the only way that's going to happen is by first movers, you know, listening to what I've been saying on this video, on this podcast, and going, right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give up my job. You know, I'm going to work full time. I'm going to mobilize people. I'm going to tell them this spiritual, political reality and sign people up. And it's going to be, it is going to be a miracle, right? In that sense, because it completely goes against anyone's, our whole culture's, fetishization of individual self-interest you know materialistic self-interest and I, I you know I, I think there's a high likelihood in a sort of counterintuitive way that we're going to see a massive flip in society you know and we're going to see millions of people move over to this sort of way of looking at life because at the end of the day it's not psychologically sustainable to be attached to the material world when that material world is evidently going to die it, 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 human beings can't cope with that sort of thing so they're going to go, go into ever more extreme um denial or they're going to or they're going to move to the other side as you put it and some of those people that move to the other side are going to move from fatalism to revolutionary activity and yeah. those are the people that are basically going to save humanity I don't use the word save humanity. I think about it as redeeming humanity, that even if we go extinct, there are things that we can do individually and especially collectively that can, you know, can be redemptive within the larger body of life. We can do the moral just thing. We can stand for the future, uh, even when it costs us tremendously as a moral imperative, as you said, the, the mother of all moral imperatives. Um, and in that process, we play, we, it's like we're redeeming our species, even if we go extinct in the next 50 years, like even if the, the Arctic wigs out and the blue yeah. ocean event occurs and whatever, and, and things are just, you know, spin out so bad, four, five, six degrees Celsius, even if that's the case, it seems to me that what we do in the, our remaining weeks, months, and years uh, that we're alive can be either redemptive or sinful to use traditional religious language yeah people might think what we're saying here is 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 you know a bit of an outlier opinion right but this is the standard this is the standard life orientation of most people in most of history because most people in most of history aren't vain and arrogant enough to think that they control their lives all they know is how to control their response to what happens in their life right you know, most people are motivated not by utilitarianism historically. They're motivated by honour and duty and, you know, cultural norms, which basically establish that when something happens, they do something else. You know, when a war breaks out, they don't have a panic about it because they already know this is the way life is. Sometimes you have to go to war or whatever. And, you know, it's a good argument saying that's bad, of course. But the point is, is the psychological structure of, of most of humanity has been towards um, this virtue ethics orientation because it's not 
it's not psychologically sustainable to think that you control everything because you evidently don't. And so it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But, you know, as I said, the central paradox is the more people do this, the more control we do have. You know, it's, I mean, I was talking to, I'll tell you a funny story. I was, I was talking to, I did this, uh, this um, speech at a big tech conference, you know, it's a bit like Davos. So I just thought I'd try it out. Not really my cup of tea. But anyway, I just told them the end had come. So, you know, you can imagine they weren't that impressed. But the, um, but I ended up having, going at the end to have a pizza with various, you know, CEOs, is that what you call them in America? And there's this guy with this big tech company in San Francisco. And, you know, he, he, you know he's, he's the archetypical utilitarian, you know. We need to work out how to have an effect. Does it work? You know, and I've got a lot of admiration for that orientation. You know, it's, it does change the world and all the rest of it. Anyway, in half an hour, I managed to persuade him the most utilitarian sort of position is to be totally into virtual ethics because he sort of grasped, he suddenly clicked, you know, it's like he clicked in his head. The, the only way we're going to save society is by not trying to save society, but do the right thing. And then once you get that, it's like your life has changed, right? It's a moment of personal transformation. And then he said to me, right, I'm going to go and get arrested with you, Roger, sort of thing. So it was like, he, he sort of got it. Well, initially he was going, well, what's the point of getting arrested, you know, doing all that stuff? Well, you know, quite rightly so. I mean, maybe it won't be effective, but you can see how that works. Yes. So he was a super, super intelligent, you know, you know, that's Harvard great. guy or whatever he was. Yeah, that's, that's great. <laughs> well, Roger, I want to make sure that I invite you to share any part of your story that you'd like. You touched a little bit on it at the beginning, but, you know, one of the things that I've been doing in this series is inviting my various guests to share what their worldview was like growing up. Most of us had a sense of perpetual progress. Not all of us, but most of us. Uh, those of us who grew up in the 1960s, 70s, even in the 80s. And then that shifted. And so how did that shift? Was it dramatic? Was it sudden? Um, so give us a sense of, of your, you know, your worldview and then how you arrived at where you are now. Well, as I said in the beginning, you know, like, you never quite know why you've turned out the way you are. That's the first thing to say, right? You know, let's not pretend. <laughs> let's not pretend we have that level of self-knowledge. I'm not quite sure why I am the person I am. I mean, it's a mystery, to put it mildly. So, you know, I can only have a few, like, vague hunches, which aren't really very sociologically robust. But, you know, I mean, an obvious correlation, let's put it like that, is mm -hmm. that both of my parents were quite unusual. You know, they were both quite strong leftists, particularly my mother, who was a, a, a very moralistic woman, quite difficult woman, if the truth be known. And, and she was a local Methodist preacher. And as far as she was concerned, there was a right and wrong in the world. And everything, more or less, was a matter of right and wrong, you know, where you put the knife and the fork on the table, you know, that became a major moral issue. So, so I sort of, I sort of, I must have absorbed that because I always had a very moralistic view of the world, you know, in, particularly in terms of social justice and when I was growing up. And obviously when the nuclear, you know, nuclear winter thing came up and the, you know, the whole disarmament movements of the 1980s, I was absolutely horrified. And that was a big changing point for me. Because like a lot of kids, you know, you, you sort of think the world's okay, right? And then you suddenly realize you're in this society that you know has it as an option to destroy everything 
<laughs> and you just think that is so fucked, right? You know, it's just. And I remember going to my headmaster and, and and saying, "I want to show a film about you know the nuclear winter," and he banned me from doing it. And that was a real, that you know, that was. I think a lot of people go through that point where you realise actually the world is pretty dark, and there's a lot of people out there that just are quite happy to see everything go down the drain, you know, just because of their lack of integrity and lack of courage. So, I, uh, you know, as a very passionate young man, and and that I was not happy and I, I I revolted against the church like a lot of people do you know I was really furious that the sure. church wouldn't like follow what Jesus was saying and what have you so um yeah I sped through into radicalism pretty quickly really and uh but having said that another major change for me was and I can more or less remember when it was I was really agitated up to being about 22 and and that was because I was so disappointed in people and so disappointed in the world. And I was going, you know, why are people late for the meeting? Why won't people go to prison? Why won't, you know, I was just always projecting my rage and anger onto other people. And it was doing me in, as you can imagine, because it does do you in, right? Um, and then when I was 22, I had this revelation and I just thought, I can't control this world. You know, it's the theme of what we've been talking about. So the only way I'm going to be able to maintain you know my radicalism as it were is by going into service fundamentally going into yes, service to, yes. in other, and that, what that concretely means is i don't actually need anyone to do anything <laughs> you know if someone lets me down yeah obviously i'm human i'm going to be a bit pissed off but I, I i don't expect anything i don't expect anything of the world of other people i just do what i can to be a good person and you know i'm not saying I'm necessarily I'm a good person you now just try but that's another kettle of fish but what I'm saying is is that's that's the reason why I'm still at it 35 years later because I just get up in the morning and go right what can I do today to make the world better in the sense that my mother would have been proud of as it were you know of saying that's basically what you do in life right you get up you're not going to get the big answers to the big questions but you are going to get an answer to you know what what what's your priorities and how can you serve humanity yes. you know and hopefully produce some good but you, n you never know of course might or, you know might have caused loads of bad things <laughs> which would be a bit of a downer right but uh, that's my intention <laughs> i'm sure some right-wing people will think i'm quite a bad person but you know who, who am i to say but um yeah so you know after that it was a lot more plain saving sailing and i was emotionally a lot more stable Yes. And, um, you know, which isn't to say I've had loads of difficulties in my life like everyone, but um, that's that's really helped. So, yeah, that's, you know, yeah. that's my projection. Yeah. In beginning to wind this down, I wanted to ask you about what's your sense of what's beyond our control and where we can still make a difference individually and or collectively. In other words, what's your sense of what's really no longer possible or what, what would require a miracle? I really love that. Um, and and what, what still seems possible? Well, you know, like, if you take our previous conversation seriously, you're not going to ask that question, are you? <laughs> because it's not an important question, right? Yes. This is the whole point. If, you're, if we're going to transcend this new paradigm, as you might say, whatever words you want to use for it, right? You just, that is not the question. Yes. I mean, I'm totally serious about this. That is not the, que that is the question that leads to burnout, 
which is, yes. oh, is it possible? Isn't it possible? I'm stressed. You know, I thought we'd reduce carbon emissions by then. Oh my God, we haven't. Oh, panic, panic, panic. You know, you know, stress, stress, stress. We've got to get out there. We've got to change the world. I've got to do 10 meetings a week. That's not going to sustain you. What yeah. sustains you is getting up in the morning saying, whatever the state of the world is, I know what my duty is. I know what it is to serve humanity. And then that produces this paradoxical calmness, which you see in many parts of the world and in many contexts, which are a hundred times more stressful than our lives, right? Yes. You know, people make that transition. And um, um, so who, who knows is my answer, yeah. right? Yeah. Who knows? But, that, you know, that... as, a, as, a, as a sociologist, as I said, you know, I can, I can point to, to this potentiality as you might say, in the human psyche, which is to become fearless at a time of greatest fear. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to get my head around that paradox, but I'm just, put, I'm just putting it out there. I appreciate exactly the way you just responded to that, because my sense of things is I'm acting as if it's possible that millions of people can step into that uh, virtue ethics stance of doing the morally right thing knowing that it may not work and knowing that there's probably a very slim chance, but it's the, it's the, it's the only ethical, moral, uh, um, divinely sanctioned. I don't know what the hell you want to call it, but, uh, so so I appreciated that response. I think the final message here is, you know, this isn't some big spiritual selfless saintly sort of move, right? This is fundamentally a move of self-interest in a paradoxical sense, right? The people that are going to suffer most in this world, are the people that have got their heads in the sand. Because, you know, even when this hell arrives, they're going to be mentally blasted away. You know, we're going to have massive mental illness and nervous breakdowns. And the people that are going to do that are the people that didn't actually adapt. So, you know, this isn't some sort of, you know, again, I don't want to frame this as a radical thing or an ethical thing, or, you know, this is what a few people like Roger Hallam can do or Michael can do. This is what everyone can do. And it's what everyone, in a sense, should be getting on with. This is the work we've got to do. Because for no other reason, it's in your self-interest, right? To, make, to do this work now, rather than waiting for when it's thrust upon you. In, and that creates the, the massive psychological stress. So, you know, that's... Yeah, don't, don't frame it in this materialistic way. You know, there's normal people, and then there's you know, we're people like Roger Hallam. It's like, no, no, no. Like, we're the normal people, right? We're the normal people because we're adapting to the situation. Yeah. The outliers are this weird culture that can't actually get its head round, you know, basic physics. That's, that's the situation. Anything that you'd like to say just to bring this conversation to completion? Well, um, there's Extinction Rebellion in America. Check that out, you know. It might not come to much, but that's the project I'm involved in. And it does basically provide a pathway to action for people to do massive disobedience in a collective way. And, you know, that's my day job is <laughs> working out how to actually be successful paradoxically. And uh, so you check that out. There's a website and What's you know, the other thing, uh, Extinction Rebellion in America, it's, okay, it's there's a Facebook page and various other bits and pieces, as, as you'd expect. And the other thing I'd say, you know, my final thing would say, just coming back to the notion of trying to transcend an ind individual material self is, you, you might listen to this video and, you know, I've, I've spent years sort of 
trying to persuade people to do stuff. And one of the things I say to people is, is unless you're a total like amazing person, you're going to listen to this video and get, you know, really pumped up by it, let's say. And then three days later, you're just going to go back to normal, right? And the reason for that is because in a strange, you know, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but we are fundamentally all herd animals, right? So if everyone's doing good stuff, you'll do something good. And everyone's doing bad stuff, you'll do something bad. And that just seems to be the way it is. You know, I'm not making any judgments about it. So my advice would be, if you like feel like you want to make this transition, you want to make it with other people. You want to, you know, join an Extinction Rebellion group or join a group, an affinity group, because you will find the strength through the collective act, as you might say. You know, unless you're a very unusual, unless you're like 1% of the population, I would say 95, 99% of the population are sustainable through community, which basically means doing stuff, right? Sitting in the road, whatever it is, doing stuff with other people. And once you do that, you'll suddenly find an astronomical amount of courage that you think you never had. Whatever you're doing, if it doesn't lead to material transgression, then you're complicit. I'm sorry, but you are, you know, and you can do whatever you like with that. You know, if you want to be complicit, who am I to judge? But you are complicit. And that's how history will see us. So, you know, it's decision time, isn't it, for all of us. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.